Isaiah chapter 5, this is God's word. Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its heads and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold an outcry. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field, until there is no more room, and ye are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses will be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant, for ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, and a homer of seed yield but an aphith. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink. They tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute, and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or the work of his hands. Therefore my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honoured men go hungry. Their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore Shehol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure and the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down, her revelers and he who exalts in her. Man is humbled, each is brought low. The eyes of the haughty are brought low, but the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Then shall the lambs graze as in their pasture, and nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, Let him be quick, let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near, let it come that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are drinking heroes at, at sorry, who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men and mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble, and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root, root will be as rottenness, and their blossom go up like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts. They have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. 
Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them, and the mountains quaked. Their corpses were as refuse or rubbish in the midst of the streets. For all this his anger is not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. He will raise a signal for nations far away, and whistle for them from the ends of the earth, and behold, quickly, speedily they come. None is weary, none stumbles, none slumbers or sleeps, not a waistband is loose, not a sandal strap is broken, their arrows are sharp, all their bows are bent, their horses' hooves seem like flint, and the wheels like the whirlwind. Their roaring is like a lion. Like young lions they roar, they growl and seize their prey. They carry it off and none can rescue. They will growl over it on that day like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress. And the light is darkened by its clouds. Let's pray and let's ask for God's help. Lord God, as we reminded ourselves this morning in your word, once again we sit and we listen at the feet of Jesus. Lord, we pray that by your spirit you would help us to understand this portion of scripture. Some of it is hard. It is gruesome. But Lord, we pray that we once again know the, the hope that we have in Jesus. Amen. So as we think about Isaiah chapter 5, I guess the, the title or the, the tagline I think would be helpful for us to remember is the people being unresponsive to God's grace. Okay, people, the Israel being unresponsive to God's grace. So think of Luke chapter 17 there, we're told the story of the ten lepers. Very famous story, Jesus tells them all to, to go and go to the priest and you'll be healed and you'll be cleansed. And ten go, they receive God's grace, they're all cleansed, and only one comes back, the Samaritan, funny enough, and he thanks Jesus. He recognized Jesus, God has poured out his grace in his life, and he responds in thankfulness to God. So as the, the people of Israel walk through their journey in the wilderness, at times, in fact, as soon as they cross the Red Sea into the wilderness, they grumbled, didn't they? They had received freedom from slavery. But instead of thanking the Lord for what he had done, they grumbled to the Lord. And we think this about people in our lives too, you know. People whom we've moved heaven and earth for. We have bent backwards for them. And they are totally unthankful. They just take it and abuse it, if you like. And that's what God's people, Israel, have done with his grace that he's poured out on them. They've received God's grace upon grace throughout all the generations, but they've turned their back on God. God has poured out his grace, if you like, in vain, it seems. They want God's acceptance, but they don't want to see God. They don't want to come to God. They don't want to be transformed by God. And as God's people Israel resist God's grace in different ways, we see that in Christian life, don't we? Where Peter is really reluctant, isn't he, to, to speak to Gentiles. And God has to speak to him. He's, if you like, unresponsive for a little while. And then he's revived and he pours out and explains God's grace to the Gentiles. 
And we too, we know God's grace. We have heard it. We have experienced it. We must allow ourselves to be transformed by it. Which we'll come to later. So let us dive in to chapter 5 and we'll split it up. The first seven verses is God's prepared vineyard. Okay? So hopefully the first verse and the first two verses especially... Isaiah writes this and God speaks to the people and it's almost like a love song, isn't it? You know, some of us had that in our Valentine's cards growing up. We might have done a bit better maybe. But it's supposed to get us to think that this is a lovely love song. Let me sing for my beloved, my love song about the vineyard, my beloved vineyard. I dug it and I cleared it of stones. I planted it with choice vines and it shows a great care a detail and, and, and concern, like getting the right bull or the right stud for animals. Here we've got the, the best vines you could ever get. We've trimmed them off the, the best vines and we're planting them in the ground. But then there's their butt. <laughs> the end of verse 2. What seems so lovely and promising that it's going to be this most beautiful vineyard. It's got the best vines, it's got the best grounds, but instead of good grapes, it yields, it yields wild grapes. It changes tone, doesn't it? So I think the start of this is it's like a parable for God's people that they're able to identify what is wrong with the vineyard, but then see themselves. They are that vineyard. So think of David when he committed adultery with Bathsheba. The prophet Nathan comes to David and tells him a story. And David says, well, that person is guilty. And Nathan says, well, that's you. The people listen to this. They're supposed to think about the vineyard. You know, that mascot, if you like, of Israel. They they hear the words and they're supposed to get the fact that it's talking about them. That they were to, to change. That they would condemn themselves. Realize their sin. Repent. And trust in the Lord again. So vineyards, the picture of Israel, or if you work through Isaiah, remember the the first application is for the church. This picture that we have is what the Lord sees. And as he looks out at his people, this vineyard, he doesn't see a good crop, but he sees sour grapes. Doesn't he? Verse, Verse two, these wild grapes or sour grapes, literally the Hebrew word is either stinking berries or poison berries. Okay, these are disgusting that you, you wouldn't eat them. Okay, and God says to his people, this is what you're producing. Poison berries. Sour grapes, stinking berries, not good fruit. And why does it not yield good fruit? Because that's what God asks of them at the end of verse 4. Why are you like this? Why are you producing poison? How could it go all so wrong? Because look what I have done for you. Verses 1 and 2. I have planted the best vines. I have looked after the ground as best I could. has been carefully dug, cleared of stone. There's a watchtower built up so no one can steal anything. There's round-the-clock care and attention all the year round. And even with all of those privileges, there's poison berries produced. Only sour grapes. God had chosen Israel to be his people. He entered into a covenant with them. And they had been so ungrateful. To the point where it appears that the entire nation. Not quite but very close. Is unregenerate. They're not looking to the Lord at all. 
And as we apply this to ourselves, we, we think about Israel. What more could God do for them? He had rescued them out of slavery. He had told them if they obeyed, they'd be blessed. If they disobeyed, they'd be cursed. He provided them with a king when they asked for one. He gave them King David. He offered them the promise of the, king, the eternal king to come. And for us as the church, what more can God do for us? He has sent Jesus. He has secured salvation for his people. That Jesus received the judgment that ought to be ours. So where is the fruit of our faith? So not only do we have the wonderful passages of Romans 8. That tell us that nothing can separate us. But we have the incredible riches of his words. But what are we doing in our faith? We have endless Bibles, apps, podcasts, internet, Bible study materials and notes, church buildings, relatively new halls here, and wonderful halls and clock. We have so, so much. But what is the result? Is there growth? Is there fruit? We must take full advantage of what we have or we will lose it. Let's read verses 5 and 6 with me. And now I will tell you, This is what I will do with my vineyard. I will remove its hedge. It shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a waste. And we can't say it of Clark and Seaford yet, can we? We can say it of many congregations up and down the country. A waste. Empty. Derelict. See, it's not individuals that make up the church. We are the church together. And each of us, personally, must look at ourselves and our sin. For how can the body work properly if the leg is infected? And we must deal with our sin because sin restricts growth. When we are unfruitful in responding to God's word and grace, we become fruitful with wild grapes or poison berries. How much fruit can be seen in our individual lives and the life of the church? It's not to be poison berries. But it's to be sweet grapes, isn't it? The Christian life is all about fruitfulness. And God wants his people to be holy, walking before him blamelessly. For us to be changed by God's spirit and his his transforming power. And this is an urgent priority for us, isn't it? And that's why we we began in in part with with John in chapter 15. That Christ is the true vine, which we'll, we'll reflect and thank God for later as well. But what does Jesus say in John 15? He says, By this my Father is glorified, that you would bear much fruit and prove to be my people. God's people, Israel here, they're producing poison berries, so they're proving not to be God's people. If they were God's people, they would be producing fruit that brings glory to God. Verse 16, You did not choose me, well, that's true of Israel and of his church. But I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit which should abide so whatever you ask in my Father's name, he may give to you. They were to bear fruit as we abide in God. And that's what God promised the Old Testament people. And that's what he promises us. For what does God want from his people? Well, verse 7, he hints at it. He looks for justice. And there's bloodshed for righteousness. And there's an outcry. 
That's what God wanted from his people. He wanted the, the poor and the vulnerable to be looked after. He wanted people to walk blamelessly before him and to trust him and to follow his ways. God says, you're not doing that. And instead of producing sweet grapes that all the nations around would see and would know that the Lord, the God of Israel, is the one true God, they produce these poison berries that leads them to eventual destruction. So we have God's vineyard that he has prepared. And then in verses 8 to 30, God pronounces judgment on the people. So over these couple of weeks, we've got glimpses of how bad things are in Israel or in Jerusalem and what the people are up to. And now he's going to help us understand why the people are being condemned. What are these sour grapes? What are these poison berries that the people are producing in their lives when they're ignoring God? Why are the people going to be judged and condemned? And as we work our way through verses 8 to 30, there are six woes. Hopefully you'll be able to to follow that in the the passage as well. These are six bunches of sour, stinking poison berries. And as we work our way through them, I want us to think about, does it ring any bells for us today in our world? But also in the life of the church. Ways in which we can stumble and fall, not allowing God's spirit to work in us, not allowing ourselves to be transformed. Okay, so here are the six woes. Verse 8, hopefully you'll be able to see there, is the first woe. Woe to those who join house to house. It is the, the, the bury of ambition. I've entitled ambition. Here we have a people that are greedy. They want more. One house isn't enough. They want two, three, four, five. They want more land. They want more property. They're adding and building up their own little kingdoms. Because God had told them that although he was giving them the promised land... They are to live as aliens in that land still. Because it was not their eternal home. It was their temporary home. But here the people live in Israel. The people who can afford it. They're building kingdoms as if it's their eternal home. They had little concern for the poor. And these woes, these warnings, these promises of doom to the people. Are for those who have a great ambition To glorify their own names. God warns them that a time will come. Because you're seeking to glorify your name. All your houses will be empty and desolate. They might well have their property. A portfolio. Which is growing impeccably all of the time. But it's going to be swallowed up. They might well be cheating for the land. They might well be putting up the rent prices. And the banks are taking people's houses away. To have these empty houses of vast estates so that they would lift themselves up. And don't we see that? That the world is ambitious all the time? What is people's. And there's nothing wrong with ambition, is there? But if the world, if we are ambitious for ourselves, there lies the problem. If we're seeking to glorify our own name, And here is God's people in Israel. They are ambitious for the Bingham family name. Whatever their name was. They are seeking to glorify their own names. And God says, I'm going to bring it down. So as God's people, as Christians, we are to be ambitious, not for our own glory, but for Christ's glory. That his name would be high and lifted up and glorified. 
that we'd be ambitious that others would know Jesus and not our property portfolio or whatever it might be. So there's woe, the sour grapes, the poison berry is ambition. The second poison berry in verses 11 to 17 is a drunks, um, yeah, men and women who are living for pleasure and escapism. Here they have no consideration to why God created them. They're just eating, drinking and being merry. But the irony of these people as they live lives to satisfy their own selves, the irony of all their eating and drinking in verse 13, what does it lead them to? Hunger and thirst. They think filling themselves up is going to help them. It's going to satisfy them. It's going to bring them purpose. And what they discover is that the more they eat and drink, the more they hunger and thirst. It's like they're drinking salt water all the time instead of a, a nice, cold, still, proper glass of water. And they get more and more thirsty. They're as enslaved to themselves, to their own amusement and entertainment. And perhaps that might be a, a, a better description of this one, be entertainment rather than drunks. Here they're drinking, eating, being merry to entertain themselves. God says, well, watch out for that. Watch out for the constant entertainment that takes your eyes off the eternal. Here there are people living in, with no thought of eternity and they're wrapping themselves up in entertainment. Do we see that today? All the time. Whenever I, I taught one of the older, more cynical staff members who was near retirement said he was no longer a teacher but an edutainer. In other words, he was, did most of his job was entertaining and a little bit of teaching on the side. And that's how people live their lives, isn't it? It's all about entertainment. And if we think about church, church is not entertainment, isn't it? But entering the house of the living Lord that we worship with heaven and earth gathered together on a Sunday. Not about entertaining us, but about worshipping him. Living with the thought of eternity on our minds. God says, watch out. If you crave after entertainment, and the more you fill your life with entertainment, you'll add more and more things. You'll just want more and more because you realize it doesn't satisfy. God says, watch out. That's a poison berry. Constantly being entertained. Third thing, verses 18 to 19, is deliberate sin. Deliberate sin. Verses 18 and 19. What does God's word say? Woe to those who draw iniquity. With the cords of falsehood. So here's the, the picture that the people are wandering the streets. And they're, it's like they're carting their sin about. And, and they're happy to carry their sin about. They'd rather carry their sin. They'd rather hold on to their sin. They'd rather live the way that they wanted than confess it and rid themselves of that sin and follow God. Because sin promises to make our life better, but it's a drag. It's hard to push and it's hard to pull. We, we try to drag it along behind us, and Jesus knows that. That's why he says, Come all who are weak and heavy laden, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. But 
We are to cast our sin on Jesus. And that's what God causes people to do always. To bring sin to him and he will deal with it. But they're happy in this deliberate sin. They're carting it about. They're hoarding it. And they don't want to know. This is the poison burning of deliberate sin. They know it's wrong. But they don't want to know it's wrong. So they just carry it with them. So ambition, entertainment, deliberate sin. Verse 20, spin. I call it spin. All good politicians have a spin doctor, don't they? They talk about and I think one of the big Belfast Council employed one quite recently as well. But their spin is a sinful heart calls evil good and good evil. That the people's ethics in Israel are all wrong. They're, up, they're turning things upside down with standards of ethical impurity. They're claiming they know what is right. And they're saying God is wrong. Poison burning. So easy to see in our culture. We don't need to go there very long. But we need to watch our own hearts, don't we? We need to recognise that God's word is God's word. I might say things that we find it hard to stomach. Hard to hear. But it's God's word. See, the word's propaganda takes concepts that were once honourable. And now uses them to glorify the perverse. It flips the world. They twist their words, not reveal truth, but to conceal truth. If you do this in our world today, you're going to be held up like a hero, aren't you? If you spin it and say what's good is evil and evil is good. And that's what the people of Jerusalem are doing. But as we think, think of the big picture stuff in our nation at the moment, what about our own hearts? Do we love what is right and good? Or do we love the things that are bad and evil. Do we distort things in our own time. To make the, 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 the evil seem good to us. That will do us not much harm. So do we enjoy the right things. Paul would, would later talk about being. Thinking about things that are honourable. Just pure, lovely, commendable, excellent. And the people of Judah aren't living like that. But do we enjoy the right things. Whenever we sit down to read a book or, or watch TV, is it going to be full of, of sex or is it not? Not do us much harm. We're twisting, aren't we? Shows full of darkness and murder. You think about this. Deliberate sin. Spin. Saying what is evil is good and good is evil. Verse 21 now. It's know-it-alls. The poison berry of being know-it-alls. And this is foolish. This is a person who always thinks themselves to be right. It doesn't matter what God's word says. We know much better. And they are know-it-alls. Verse 21. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. Who are shrewd in their own sight. These are people who know it all. They are proud to know it all. And they're happy to be proud. They are foolish though, aren't they? For they actually know nothing because they are just man. And then the final, well, verse 22. Corruption. It's poison berries of corruption. Cheaters who accept a bribe and call it justice. In our culture we might call it lobbying groups actually, mightn't we? Stephen Nolan, 
He does a, a podcast on BBC Sounds about Stonewall and links to the LGBT, the government and the BBC, essentially lobbying, highlighting the corruption, essentially the bribery. We pay you this and you produce this for us. And it happens all the time in the world of science whenever there's a study released it's to get a certain result. And here the, the people are no different. They get a little brown envelope and they're going to say what people want to hear. They're going to bring justice according to what they, the amount they have in the envelope. What's going to serve them better. And there's utter corruption everywhere. So here are the woes of the people of Israel. These are the, the poison berries in which they live. Those in, in government, those in the judicial system, they're corrupt. They do not seek to bring justice. We need to make sure that we're not corrupt in how we see justice in our world. There are people who are know-it-alls, people who are incredibly proud, and that's a poison berry. Not seeing our own sin, but seeing the sin of others, thinking that we're always right and you're always wrong. That we don't spin things to suit ourselves and our agenda. That we don't just carry around deliberate sin, ignoring God's word. That we're not simply always wanting to be entertained. And we're not ambitious to to glorify our own names. That all this, all these poison berries that the God's people are producing, God says, I'm going to sort it out. See then, God gets to the root of the problem, verse 24 on. Chapter 3, verse 8, as I has already told us, Jerusalem has stumbled, Judah has fallen, because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. And in verse 24, we get to the root of the problem again, and it's disobedience. They're not listening to God. They've rejected him. They've rejected the law of the Lord, but God, who is always delighted in his people, is not going to delight in his people much longer. You see, today, we must not be producing poison berries because God will sort out the root of the problem. We might not be heard in our world, but as we look to the root of the problem, what hope is there for us in all of this? Well, it's in verse 16, that even as God solves the root of the problem in society or in the church or in a nation, The Lord of hosts will be exalted in justice and the Holy God will show himself holy in righteousness. That God will always be righteous. But we are not. We, like God's people, Israel, are full of disobedience. And without Christ, we will be judged. And God is saying to the people, without returning to me, you're going to be removed. So that's what verses 25 and 30 is about. There's a quite graphic picture of what is to come. That God's going to raise his hand. He's going to whistle like people whistle a dog back to them. Here God's going to whistle an enemy to his people to remove them. It's quite hard even if we think about Israel and we think about the pictures today. Here bodies, corpses are going to be lying in the street like rubbish. And God's going to lift up a banner for distant nations, in this case Assyria, to come and take his people away. That the heads that he had protected them with, he will remove. And he's going to allow his people to be taken away. Because this 
people that are going to come to remove them is going to be Assyria, a people with formidable military might. We see that in the last couple of verses, that they are ready, they are coming swiftly and speedily. The equipment that they have is immense. The aggression that they come with is hard. They're like lions. And the people will be overwhelmed without hope. The judgment is clear. Isaiah is showing Israel to be an unholy people. People producing poison berries. But as a church, that should not be us. Sure it shouldn't. We know we will have poison berries in our hearts. But the church should not be an unholy people. Our Christian holiness ought to be visible in our lives and in our hearts. And that was clearly lacking in Isaiah's day. And God shook the people. Maybe that's what's happening in our day too. For those outside, trusting in the Christ to come, or as trusting in Christ now, there is no hope. So what do we need to do? Well, because of all our poison berries, we deserve to be cast away and judged, just like God's people here in verses 25 to 30. But there's hope. Why? Because though God will remove his vine, Israel, Jesus is able to say that I am the true vine. If you want to be part of God's people, you need to be planted in me. It used to be Israel. That was God's people. There's a new people. God's church here planted in Jesus. And we must ensure to abide in him. Why? Because those who abide in Christ will produce much fruit. (coughs) Sweet grapes. Not poison berries. Israel was supposed to be the fruitful vine. But they had failed. And Jesus, he is the vine that will flourish. And we must be connected to him, mustn't we? That we would learn from him, that we would listen to his word, that we would soak it up so that we produce fruits. Fruits, not for our ambition to get our names known, but that God would be glorified in us and through us. That we would be able to, to people in the world around us, we be able to see our fruit not of self-ambition, not of entertainment, not of pride, not of um, these other woes that we've had of being corrupt. But that they will be able to see the fruit of Jesus. And that God will work us in us and through us and add other to, others to himself. So that even in a world that is crumbling around us, with people upon people being unresponsive to God's grace, who has given them much in life, as they have turned their backs on him, people will continue to come to Jesus, as we've seen this morning, so that he would be glorified. Don't be a poison berry, but be a sweet grape. There's something I never thought you'd hear from the pulpit. On your page that we've been looking at, or your order service, if you like, on the way. And thought about this morning about listening to God's word and responding to it and having these different conversations that will help us in our walk. Here are the three questions around tea and coffee time. We can all share together. They're not hard, I trust. But I think it's worthwhile reflecting, isn't it? First question, how has God blessed us as congregations? And how do we take full advantage of it? That these won't be derelict and rotting. Second question. Which of the six woes are still obvious in our culture today? What about our church? 
on ourselves perhaps. And then the third thing, how do we ensure that we produce gospel fruit rather than poison berries? I trust that will be helpful for us as we reflect on it shortly. But as we respond after hearing God's word, we're going to do so in prayer. So let me pray.